Altbau, somewhere deep in the suburb of Moabit, Berlin, two wicked women sit in contemplation of the world, huddled around the microphones of their home studio. We are singer-songwriter Samantha Waring. That's me. And broadcaster and writer Megan Spencer. Oh, that's me. And we're two Australian Wahlberlinerinnen, meaning optionally Berliners. Or Berliners by choice. Three Wicked Women is our podcast, the third woman being the beautiful, bright and belligerent city of Berlin, brimming with Berliner schnauzer and tales aplenty. Each episode, we will bring you seriously funny conversation, fearless music and wicked guests. Yep, it's another Vertumpter podcast. And no, it's not NPR. Three Wicked Women is very loose radio indeed. Welcome, Welcome to, to our world. world. Sam, your washing's ready. I think we need to start with a song. <laughs> We're just riffing. <laughs> to the rhythm of the washing machine. <laughs> Welcome to side one, track six. Music. <laughs> Good evening, Berlin. You just went a bit popcorn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then for some reason, Manam Manap and the Muppets just mm. jumped into my mind. I don't know why. Surely one of the great songs. It is one of the great songs. You might have guessed. <laughs> Today we get to explore a topic that's very near and dear to both of our hearts, Sam. It is music. Yes, that's why we were singing so fantastically <laughs> just now. <laughs> Radio but, karaoke. Yeah, but look, I mean... I am a poor singer, but Sam, you're a musician and a singer-songwriter mm. as well. And uh, look, I'm an old music fan from way back. You get to write about it pretty often. I do. And actually, that's how we met, mm. if you recall. Yes. A couple of years ago now, I got in contact with Sam because I was coming to Berlin for a visit. And I wrote an article, a couple of articles actually out of it. Um, and there are a ton of Australian musicians here in Berlin, but also coming here each year to work and explore the music culture here. Mm. You've been here for how long? Seven years in August. So you've been pretty much a musician right across your time here too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been a musician for 25 years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you old slapper. <laughs> I know. Trooper. I'm a trooper. I've, to I've a seen gig. you drag around an amp and a guitar on a, what's the trolley? A beer trolley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A beer, yeah, beer bargain. Trolley. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> all through the streets of Berlin. Oh, I've toured all over Europe with yeah. one of those, like, you know, 35 kilos of gear on my back and like two changes of clothes. <laughs> Touch wood. I've been extremely lucky that my gear has survived intact and I have survived intact. Such a Berlin story. It actually sounds a little bit like a Darwin story too with musicians up there. They become very resourceful as and resilient mm -hmm. as well. Been very necessary. So yes, welcome to the music episode after yes. being regaled by that Berlin tale, Sam. Just quickly, mm. greatest gig you've ever seen? Prince at... The Waldbühne by the Olympiastadion. I'll put you on the spot there. You did very well. Thank you. <laughs> so many good shows, though. I'm, I'm, I mean, mm. can't, how, do you, how do you choose from different amazing life experiences? Because that's what, when, when music is truly transcendent, it, it goes into you and stays with you for a long, long time afterwards. For sure. So Snap, Prince for me. And uh, I, I still, my memory banks are always scanning for someone who can top Prince's 
live performance that I saw many years ago now in Melbourne. Did at... you see the Diamonds and Pearls? Of course I did. did. Wow. Are you serious? Of course I did. With the revolving bed, of course oh. I did. So we will revisit Prince. Yes. And a few other of our dear departed music heroes towards the end of our episode today on Three Wicked Women. And today... Amelia Jane Hunter tells us how music saved her life deep mm. in the jungles of the Philippines. Oh my God, that story is extraordinary. Sommelier Oliver Budak brings music to your ears with a degustation match sweet enough to bring on diabetes. <laughs> I discover a chef and an opera singer bringing great joy to the tables of Berlin, pairing Korean and Spanish cuisine with Mozart. But right now... On Three Wicked Women, let's meet New Zealand-born Japanese conductor and electronic musician Takumi Motokawa. He's my housemate here in Berlin, and we're about to explore the very fine art of conducting an orchestra. Let us talk into the microphones. Yeah. Popping, popping. Popping, popping. Syphilis, syphilis, <laughs> syphilis. <laughs> Excellent mic check. Yeah. You're listening to Three Wicked Women, and I'm interviewing Takumi Motokawa, a Berlin-based percussionist, composer, and conductor. I wanted to talk to you about conducting and writing for film, like film soundtracks, writing for screen. Yeah. I know that you did a a ten-day intensive workshop with orchestra in St. Petersburg. Yeah. At the start of the year. Yeah. Can you tell us about your experience of being there and, and what you did in the course? Well, first of all, um, St. Petersburg, I've never been to um, St. Petersburg and um, I was always fascinated by um, Russia. It was a um, very good experience um, being there. I was very inspired and, yeah. What was it like getting to work with a, a real orchestra? It's not just real orchestra, it's actually the professional orchestra. It's a bit of a difference between uh, working with um, amateur and student ensemble mm. and uh, professional orchestra. Basically, the difference mm. is professional orchestra can play pieces straight away with um, little amount of rehearsals. And that seems to be a really important thing with modern orchestras and conducting. I've read that you don't get a lot of rehearsal time anymore. Is that true? Unfortunately, those days are basically gone because of the budget um, restrictions. They don't usually get that many um, hours to rehearse. How uh, many hours would be typical these days for a, a performance? Well, small regional orchestra, I've had experience of just only two rehearsals and uh, had to actually perform. So that's about running the piece twice or three times. Wow. I look at conducting and imagine some sort of interesting relationship between the conductor and the orchestra where there's visual or or gestural communication going on. Yeah. What's it like having that kind of power over a large number of musicians? It's very satisfying, but um, also at at the same time, there's a lot of stuff going on in my head um, at the same time, so I don't really get to feel that much of whoa i was just doing so they whoa that kind of (laughs) my my mind has to be on the next page all the time okay so so you don't get to rest in the grandeur of the moment how far ahead in a piece are you that's the thing 
I have to be always ahead of them. Otherwise, there's no point of having a um, conductor in front of the orchestra. Basically, I have to know the piece inside out. Mm. And um, yeah, even before they play, I have to give them an upbeat. Mm-hmm. And upbeat basically indicates everything mm. they have to play on that downbeat. How well do they need to know the piece? Well, that's the thing about having uh, having a conductor in front. They do need to know the piece, but they don't actually have to know every single person is doing what. So if you're playing the violin, you don't, well, you do need to know um, a couple of cues, but uh, you don't quite need to know, for example, what trombone is doing. But at very high high level orchestra, you do actually need to know um, what everyone else is doing. But it's easier to play uh, with a conductor um, without knowing what everyone else is doing. Because you can trust them to guide you through the piece. Yes. It's, um, it's basically just all, all about having a mixer or like mixing disc in mm. front of you and sort of dealing with the, what needs to be in the forefront and what needs to be in the background. Oh, that's a nice analogy. Yeah. Okay, so the conductor is this basically the sound engineer of the orchestra. Basically, yeah. How far do conductors vary from the arrangement suggestions in a piece? Uh, you mean the in- interpretation? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually another thing about conductor. For example, like if it's just one piece um, by um, Beethoven 7th or something like that, or or even ninth. Mm. Well, for example, the length of the piece can actually vary quite mm. a bit. Um, for example, Karajan's um, Beethoven ninth. He's a very famous conductor. Yeah, yeah. Would be somewhere around 74 minutes. Okay. And... That's actually how the capacity of the CD was decided in the first place because his ninth <laughs> is exactly, exactly 74, around, minutes. Around 74 minutes. So whoever whoever invented the technology was a huge classical music fan. Well, Sony actually, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. But then another conductor would run it at a quicker pace or run it at a slower pace. Yeah. <sighs> For me, classical music is a series of canonic pieces. Yeah. Different orchestras around the world have done these pieces a number of times before conductors may revisit pieces over the course of their career. Yes. How do you bring something new to the interpretation of a piece? It's actually a hard thing. For example, with orchestra, you can add or subtract members Mm. that would actually contribute to the Mm. sound quality. Basically, if you add more strings, it's going to get really massive yeah. sound and um, heavier sound but you can't really do that for the sake of um, making it heavier it has to be according to each piece anyway so um, if it's only got like two oboes and two, two flutes and you just have like massive massive um, string section, <laughs> um, yeah. section you're gonna drown them out <laughs> yeah yeah but also the things you can do is again in the mixing process of the orchestra, mm. it can make make the sound very bright, or it can just make the sound very dark, dark and, and yeah, ominous. Such power. Yeah. But it's a living dynamic. It's not something you're doing in a studio afterwards. It's this, it's a thing that has to happen. Yeah. In an ephemeral moment, and then once that piece is gone, it's gone. Yeah. What kind of sounds interest you when you think about writing for screen? Well, I'm interested by all sorts of um, sounds anyway, from anything 
harmonic and, me- and melodic mm. in a more of a traditional sense to something contemporary and electronic or more atonal. And I suppose it would depend very much on the project that you were writing yes. for. What's the process? If you get a film, you must have to see cuts of the film to write to them. Yeah, uh, usually the director gives me certain moments, like, for example, like scene blah, 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 from 3 minutes 52 to 4 minutes 34, for example, like, happy, cheerful, uh, but slightly... Ominous. Ominous. <laughs> or something Some, like that. A good day that's about to go very, very bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You recently did a project that involved you bashing a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For music. For music. I just had one day in the studio uh, with with a car and a uh, whole bunch of recording equipment and basically just sampled um, whatever noise we can actually um, make out of out of like a car so hitting the car or scraping it or just engine sound and electronic sounds we reconstructed it into more of a musical piece yeah was it fun well, yeah. Does it, I mean, who gets to beat up a car for work? <laughs> That's great. Unless you're a panel visa. Well, unless you're yeah. visa, <laughs> What brought you to Berlin? Well, I basically just wanted to um, expand my horizon. I'm into both um, classical and uh, contemporary music, so um, Berlin is pretty strong in... Um, both of those, especially um, electronic music and easy to travel to um, Eastern Europe also. If Berlin was a person, how would you describe that person to someone else? Someone who stays up late uh, making something and doesn't really work in like nine to five job. (laughs) 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 Selling ideas. So where can people find out about your many types of work? I do have a website mm-hmm. and it is um, takumimotokawa.com. Yeah. Fantastic. Takumi Motokawa, thank you so much for talking with Three Weeks of Women. It's been a pleasure. A very talented fella is Tak. He's conducting and music takes him all over Europe. I mean, I keep finding exotic beers all over the house that he's brought <laughs> back from his travels. I mean, we had this amazing Belgian cherry beer, which was I recall. Yeah, that was delicious. And a rather exotic kartoffel beer, potato beer. Well, thank you very much, Tack, for being on Three Wicked Women. Mm. And all that talk of beer and potatoes makes Mm -hmm. me hungry, Sam. You know what that means, don't you? Yes. Now it's time for... Oliver Budak's Gut Feeling. Freak food and wine matching with Oliver Budak. Sommelier, Berlin. This is one of our favourite spots. Isn't it, Sam? It is. We get to talk about food and drink. Mm. Essen und trinken. Is that right? Is that correct, German? Essen und trinken. (laughs) Stimmt. This is the basis of a good life, It is, and it's the basis of gut feeling with Oliver Budak, Berlin sommelier. Hi, Megan. Hi, Sam. Yeah, today is really special because um, a, a wonderful experience I had quite often is to combine a nice lush, rich chocolate dessert, and in this instance, the fudge brownie with a port. There may be also other stickies or dessert wines, uh, a, a sweet cherry, 
or a musket, uh, which would be uh, most wonderful. But we go to the shops here and we want to buy what's available and, again, what's not too expensive. Mm -hmm. And we are very blessed that port is made in Portugal. Portugal is not far from here. Not far. It's part of the EU. And we get really decent port here for already under 10 euros a bottle. I, I, I didn't spend much. I spent 10 euros on a bottle of Delaforce Ruby Port. Mm -hmm. And I have picked a ruby port um, because the ruby port after the fermentation is when it's not, if it's not filled directly, it's, it's stored in stainless steel tanks mm. or in old wooden casks. So the idea with the ruby port is to maintain its freshness and mm. its fruitiness, where uh, if you buy a tawny port, you will have something which is matured longer and also is subjected to the process of oxidization. Mm. So you get added aromas and flavors from the barrel. And, and the, that lovely rust color that Twilly yeah. Port has. So with a ruby port, I thought it's nicer to, to, to match a sweet dessert wine with the rich chocolate dessert because mm. you want the freshness of the fruit and the light acidity that the wine still has. You want that to lift the chocolate. So yes, you have, you have a quite sweet drink, but it also has acidity. It's not all ending up in your mouth that, that it's a sugar mesh and explosion. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's a compliment. It's still, it's, a compl it's complimenting and it's structured mm. and it gives the chocolate actually a lift. Well, we just uh, happened to have some glasses of ruby port in front of us. It's got this. It's got this marvelous, deep, deep, almost opaque red color. It's as quite I blood red, isn't look it? At it. It's and I brought some mm. chocolates as well oh. from the chocolatier. Unfortunately, mm. uh, they didn't have brownies, but we have some we have chocolate close. chocolate coat, coated cookies and some little sahne nuggets. No. Oh. Okay, so these are the cookies. Would the you cookies, like a cookie or a sun nougat? I'd like the nougat. Well, we, we need to try oh. them. Is that, oh, okay. that one? I'm I not the other. Oh, okay. Do not. both. There we go. <laughs> right. One of each. Yeah. So Marvellous. This, this is the advantage always of having a food and or wine segment so on, I've, on, your, on I've, your podcast. Indeed. Um, you get to eat and consume as samples. Ooh. And wow. That's lovely. Mm. It's, mm. Got a, it's got a slightly powdery, mm. cocoa y vibe to so, it. It's good with the port, though, hey. Mm. Are you allowed to like eat and drink mm. at the same time? Put them in your mouth. Mm. Mm. Oh my god! Man, that'd keep your granny happy, oh wouldn't it? Oh my god! <laughs> Around the fireplace. My golly, golly gosh! That is delightful. So tell us what happened in your mouth. So I, I have these these explosion mm. of mm. dried dark cherry uh, and mm. berry fruit, and and the pot itself has mm. some flavors and and aromas of chocolate. Mm. caramel mm. a hint of mm. vanilla and it it's it's just it's just basically edging the chocolate on oh you think you want to be the star here let <laughs> me show what i can do you know so it's like it's like a multiplication of mm. flavors it goes higher and higher just on its own it's already interesting but together my god it's reminding me of uh, uh, as a child i used to get Bars of Turkish delight covered in chocolate. Mm. Yes, you can still get them. I think, mm. and this this is reminding me very much of the the there's the acidity and a, the slight oh. drying mm. effect mm. replicates the the combination of the chocolate and the uh, the rose water Turkish mm. delight. Mm. Oliver, I must ask you this because like sherry and vermouth and port, yeah. I remember them from my childhood on the sideboards of all the places in the 70s you know that mm. you go and dad would have a knockoff drink or and mum and dad or whatever at the end of the day but it fell out of favor port it was seen as like the granddad drink or sherry as well and of or course, the kind of old 
old man sitting yeah. on a park bench. Or very conservative. So Carol. what's happened? Has it, I mean, in Europe, obviously, sherry and port have got different uh, connotations, but mm. has it come back into favour? Uh, I mean, the, the, the industry is talking about it. The, the restaurants, uh, people that run restaurants, chefs are very fond of those uh, wines. Mm. And, and the, those wines you all mentioned, they're, mm. they're all classified and called fortified wine. They are still not back in favour. But like every drink in a period of time had a high time, had a go time. And I guess sherry and port possibly in Europe and Australia in the 50s and 60s. I think by the 70s then we started to drink more wine mm. and, and we were getting off the spirits or the fortified wines. But the, again, what we did then, I, I have the feeling, I mean, I wasn't around then, that um, we were drinking lesser quality mm, not we, as good and we just yeah. got sick of it cheap sweet and, mm. and we possibly also use them as mixers mm. while these really should be enjoyed on their own this ruby pot because it's a young one it's a fresh one you can even i would say drink slightly chilled and that you get so much happiness and fun out of it and especially with chocolate <laughs> oh my lord the, these 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 wines are highly complementary to to food Mm. In this instance, for dessert, it would be also perfect with the blue cheese. Maybe not the ruby, but maybe the tawny. This is something I experienced when I was in Porto last year. Um, when we went and did a whole heap of tastings in, in Porto, they were often served with cheese plates and it was like aged manchego and like mm. quite sharp mm. goat's cheeses and, and stuff with real character. And it went perfectly with the, the tawnies and the aged and mm. it's lovely. Yeah, I have not tried that yet, but I'm, I'm burning to do so. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that this will be very, very nice. Do you think there will be a resurgence in port and sherry? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I, since Fortified Wines are on my horizon, working in the industry, I always try to push them. Mm. I know lots of other people, so many years, uh, restaurateurs, uh, chefs, which try to push it too. It will be never have the commercial success of, of a Chardonnay or of a Sauvignon Blanc mm. or anything like this or, or, or whiskey or vodka to speak in spirits. But it will, it, it, I think it will sl slowly lose its, its bad reputation because there is none. It, it's, they are fantastic handcrafted wines, mm. which also carry a lot of history. It's fascinating. I mean, for anyone uh, which has the opportunity, I guess, to, to, to travel the Douro Valley, mm which I haven't done yet, but I believe you. No, where is it? It's uh, in northern Portugal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a couple of hours north of Lisbon. There's this huge wide river mouth where the Douro opens out and as you, as you look down from the old centre of, of Porto. Porto, across the other side of the river, hidden slightly in the hills, so sheltered a mm -hmm. little from the direct Atlantic winds, you've got all of the port houses cheek by jowl along the this stretch of river and it's all these names that you've seen all of your life the house of port oh it's marvelous well on that note while we're booking our fs right yes. now to get over there thank you oliver and sam for single-handedly reviving port Mm -hmm. with chocolate. Thank, you. Thank you for having me and um, I hope you try this at home because if not you're missing out on a great taste experience <sighs> Foodgasm. Mm. I'll just fan you down a Thank little bit. <laughs> oh, and if you are interested in, in keeping up with the adventures of the enjoyment aficionado Oliver Budak, you can go to his website, oliverbudak.com. You're listening to Three Wicked Women Radio. I've forgotten what the next bit is. Sorry, one more. <laughs>
That was a very sweet treat. Oh, my Lord. I think I'm going to have to have a little lie down. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want there to be like a surge of adrenaline and you just like flop onto the desk and that's it. Oh, be like when I used to eat condensed, sweetened condensed milk at at uni. Me and my friend Dave would like crack open cans of it. Or worse, we'd boil it for several hours and then make this ridiculous sort of creme caramel where you'd get like a couple of tins of boiled sweetened condensed milk and whip double cream through them and then we just sit in the living room and pull cones and eating this stuff with a spoon from the bowl. Like and a pudding? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, but but much more vulgar. Do you, do you know the, the, <laughs> the thing that gave me a food coma uh, was banoffee pie? Have oh, you ever had that? Oh, my Lord, banana toffee. Yeah, that Genius. was a revelation. I think I learnt that when I lived in Sydney. There was some <sighs> scungy share house involved. Oh. Well, look, anyway, from the very sweet now to the very innovative, how's mm. this for an idea, Sam? Food, wine and opera as a degustation dinner and then calling it Singmal or singing meal in German. A great idea, yes? Well, that's what I thought. Mm. And that's what Berlin restaurateur and elite opera singer Binley Zauner and her chef husband Jose Mario do. They run one of Berlin's most exciting fusion restaurants, and that's not of the jazz variety. That's of the food variety. Nice. No high bases, slappy yeah, no, bases. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, 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 no. And it's a, it's a really beautiful restaurant in Prenzlauerberg, which is a suburb of Berlin. And this year they were included in the prestigious 2016 Michelin Guide. <gasps> yes. Really? They got yeah. a hat? They got a high five from Michelin. Oh, my Lord. They did. So recently I went along to meet them. How did this concept for a Korean-Spanish restaurant, fusion restaurant, come about? It's very simple because uh, Bini is a Korean and me is a Spanish guy. So um, both came from a big food culture like Spain and, and Korea. And so we, we thought about, uh, yeah, we make, let's make authentic. Let's make Korean food and uh, uh, Spanish food. So is there a lot of similarities between the food cultures of Korea and Spain? Yeah, really many things. Um, Korean love to eat seafood, first of all, in yes. Spain also. And then we love to eat garlic, chili. The most similar thing is this small tapas, like we say panchan. We eat it uh, with rice instead of bread. That's the small difference about many same things. Spain has also a big rice culture. It's not only uh, about bread. Yeah, the Spanish people, Spanish uh, seamen bring the chili into Asia. Both culture, for example, eats a lot of vegetables, which uh, a lot of tourists don't know that uh, most of of, uh, food in Spain is like uh, uh, vegetables and not only uh, meat and, and, and fish or like this. No? And uh, so it's like for Koreans too, about uh, 60 or 70 percent of their food is like uh, eating vegetables and, and rice. And uh, yeah, that's what we try to find out. No? What are the basics of both food cultures? So did you invent this menu from the ground up? Tell us a little bit about what's on it, the interesting dishes on it, and and how you came to develop this particular menu. 
We try to um, first to, to take the basics from one country and uh, apply a, a technique maybe from another country. It's like about fermentation. We take like, uh, well, like fennel or like a bell pepper from Spain and uh, add the uh, technique of fermentation from Korea. This is one basic. Another basic is like you take Korean product like um, the nori flakes and makes uh, small Spanish pancakes of it. So what becomes on top, it's like uh, you need a whole, like uh, the umami effect. So you combine uh, some acid and some uh, carbo and some, some sugars to a right small but, but perfectly tasting uh, meal. That's it. We cooked a lot at home together. <laughs> and I made some um, food from Korea with my mom's recipe. Jose just tasted it. And then he asked me some interesting questions. I answer very simple. And then Jose disappeared sometimes and then <laughs> make some food based on my mom's recipe. And I just test it. I say, wow. <laughs> um, for example, kimchi pancake with a smelting manchego. Yeah. <laughs> kimchi pancake is this really my mom's recipe. This is very simple, very basic uh, street food. And I think Jose has had some um, library of, <laughs> of tasty in, in brain. And then he combined it and then it matched, it works. And your customers, obviously, you've been open four years, you're building, you have a good reputation, you have, you're in the Michelin Guide, so someone's taking notice. How do your customers react to these kinds of flavour and cultural cuisine combinations? Well, they're always very uh, interested because um, about three, four years running, there was guests from the very beginning coming and coming and coming and they find always that it's it's quite uh, interesting to to taste our food and uh, well it's also because it's about fresh cooking this is why we are in the michelin guide now there is no microwave there is no fridge uh, there is no uh, froster so uh, yeah everything is handcrafted and uh, this is what what brings the, the taste really out you know? um in the first year and second years was really difficult because they looking at our menu in an outside and then reading, reading, reading <laughs> and um, go away and come back and reading, reading. <laughs> I think it's three or four times they reading and they think about it. Yeah. So you're looking through the window, going, he's come back again. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we saw like that, this. we yeah, saw yeah. that. Let's and see, uh, four times, he's coming. Okay, he's he's coming. coming. <laughs> yeah. And then um, if somebody come and taste it, and then come again. But it's the first step in inside to Kochukar was really difficult. Now, one of the other very interesting and exciting things you combine is music with food it's not just two very interesting asian culture european culture together it's music and food and you provide music and food degustation dinners i've never heard that in my life so please tell me a little bit about how that came about because i know you are a soprano binley um i know exactly 
that evening. Um, one of our guests had uh, a event or, or he celebrated they, their marriage. And then he asked me, could you please sing something? Today is a very special day. And I sung. And they they loved they loved it, and then they told me, "Why did you make it some singing and food?" And we thought about it's not foolish. <laughs> That idea is good, but how 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 can do it? it? It was very important for me. I don't like sing between the food. I don't want to like city player. I singing and somebody eat it and make it. Like noise, and and we thought, okay, you make it at four courses menu, and in between that menu, I sing. And we uh, thought about name of this event, and we love this uh, event. The name we say sing sing mal in German. Say if somebody want to let somebody sing, and they say sing mal was sing mal. That means singing. Let's sing. Yeah, yeah, let's sing. Yes, <laughs> and we we put it the uh, H in between the M A L. It means mal means meal. This is sing meal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and have the reactions been good to this event that you've run, this Zingmal event? The first event was uh, like uh, every guest I introduced this thing, and then the second time was already full. And uh, I think it is August 2012. I think it's three minutes broadcast television, and then we were uh, out of booking until December. That, that's Amazing, but I can see why because it's such a unique idea, and the Germans do love their opera too. Can I just quickly ask you? So you're a trained soprano, and you've run, you've sung with Deutsche Opera, is that right? Yes, I studied here in in Berlin and Munich, and then after that uh, six year, years, I was in North Germany as a fast ensemble, and then after that. I'm free freelancer, and then 2012, after that, this restaurant opened, <laughs> I was in on the stage in the Deutsche Oper Berlin. This is crazy. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> singing and working. singing and working together. So you haven't had to give up your passion to run a restaurant, which often happens because they just take completely take over your life. So you've been able to continue that. And you also sing at charity events, is that right? This afternoon, I'm going to go and record you at a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is not only benefit, I get money, <laughs> I earn money, but um, I, I get it much more than I give. The people love to go to concerts, but they couldn't, and they are two years or three years only in the hospital or 
I, so the, these these are older people who have maybe dementia or, or very severe, yeah, or the very old. They can't yeah. get out. Yes. So you go and you sing to them. Yes. What's her voice like? Well, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, she has a beautiful voice. Yes, I'm in love with. <laughs> yeah. You're in love with her and her voice. <laughs> both, both, of course, yes. Yeah. It's a creative space, isn't it? Uh, Kochukawa is like uh, Bini and, and Jose. So we are always like uh, making jokes or feeling free here. Um, it's not a stand-up comedy, but uh, because <laughs> it's also hard work. <laughs> but um, I think this is what, what Kochukawa is about. Kochukawa is at home and um, my husband cooking and I'm here and then my guest coming and I'm happy about it. <laughs> and singing too. Yeah, yeah. What an incredible voice. It's, it's really true that opera singers are the heavy lifters of the singing world, isn't it? I'm nodding vociferously. Yes, oh, indeedy. Wow. Um, so a huge thank you to Binlia Zauner, who you heard there, ending that story with her beautiful singing. And also featured in that story were soprano Beata von Hahn and pianist Sayori Toma de Coro, and they were performing for the residents of Uni Hilfwerk Aged Care Facility in Kreuzberg, Berlin. Is your show still called Three Wicked Women? Are we not still wicked? All right. More music, methinks. Let's see what comedian Amelia Jane Hunter has to say about it, and she will have something to say. This is our music episode, Amelia. Willkommen, welcome. Herzlich willkommen. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. It's always a joy to be here. Always. And, um, are you someone where we could say to you, did music somehow save your life? Indeed. Several times it saved my life. And uh, thinking about, uh, you know, one particular time, I wrote down a story because this happened to me many years ago. I was living in Australia and decidedly unhappy and, mm. you know, grasping for, you know, a deeper understanding of my culture and where the hell am I at the moment creatively. So, of mm. course, when you're depressed, it's a great idea to go to England. Um, <laughs> in winter, <laughs> was it? In yeah, <laughs> just deep set winter. Oh, um, living a Smith song. Oof. <laughs> it was... It was nasty. And you're, you're a comedian. We should tell people you're a performer, writer, comedian, TV producer as well. So were you over there at that time looking for work in comedy? I was doing comedy, which was always, you know, a great balance and a, a lifesaver for me. Although, you know, I also value food and shelter. So mm. I have to work in television as well. Uh, but I was struggling to get any work because, you know, even though they saw that my CV was as colourful as my personality, they weren't quite sure about my weaknesses and my strengths so I was a little bit fed up with constantly having to sell myself to you know a 21 year old executive producer uh, who had all the you know spiritual depth of a whippersnipper but had gone to the right school and <laughs> yeah you know. and had the right sharp bob cut and wore mm. the red mac lipstick but I remember there was you know a particular day where I was sitting under an otherwise bleak uninspiring sky plotting a drive-by shooting on a <laughs> smug yoga center uh, when my phone rang and it was 
an Australian producer living in the Philippines asking me what would be my interest in flying to the Philippines and producing international movies and travelling around Southeast Asia just being genuinely quite amazing. And I was like, well, absolutely. And we had a very, very brief phone interview and, uh, you know, verbatim she said, mate, we live on the beach, Uh, we have our own bar, beer costs 11 cents, we work with famous directors, it's a dream job, you're the boss, no one fucks with you, you'll love it, no questions about it, are you coming? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know, I was like, well, yeah, Yeah. I do have a question, you know. Is beer really 11 cents? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, obviously I love to be swept up in the adventure, the romance of it all. I'm constantly thirsty for fun and I was desperate to remove myself from the ancestors of malnourished and chinless doom. Oh, chinless. So true. So I decided (laughs) to give it a go. Now, I touched down in the Philippines. It was midnight. It was this sultry seduction of that tropical heat that Megan, having lived in Darwin, Darwin, you know Mm -hmm. very, very well. Mm -hmm. It sort of sugars the air that you Mm -hmm. breathe. And it was cloaked in that mystery of midnight black and that homeopathic remedy uh, for any misgivings I'd had in perhaps, you know, flying to the UK, then taking a job nine hours north of Sydney. (laughs) And I felt that just just for a moment I was... Really, really happy. And yeah. I had made the right decision. And then the sun came up. Holy shit, I was in a fucking porn den, right? It was a dirty, dusty, rooster-ridden film set with stained <laughs> walls, bleeding sound, badly lit, dreadfully shot. And this, my lovely ladies, was my first day at work. I'd been flown into a production company that made porn. Crikey. Rooster ridden. Rooster ridden, yes. It wreaked havoc on the sound. <laughs> but after times they'd just go, don't worry about it, just leave them in. Duk, duk, duk. Yeah. Yeah. Duk, duk, duk. Yeah, exactly. And then the jeepneys, like the lo- local traffic that would go past, blaring, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, power ballad that was playing. Oh, And we just went, roll with it, roll with it, oh. go with it. Oh, it was appalling. But, you know, it was... Instantly surrounded by armed guards uh, who were stripping my baggage, searching for weapons, contraband or any creativity. (laughs) I realised that not only was this international film production that I had been lured towards a mirage, but the beach was a mangrove, the compound was a prison, there were peepholes in my bedroom and the Uh, Australian producer was nowhere to be seen. Oh, my God. God. Yeah. Now the guards were, like, shouting in my face, wanting my passport, my fingerprint and my firstborn. (laughs) It was a case of Hotel Echo Lima Papa. What the hell had I done? Now, so, you know, to cut a long story short, during my first weeks, you know, the pendulum sort of swung between what the fuck and where the fuck am I. Mm -hmm. And because the CEO was nowhere there, the the production company was owned by an Austrian man, he was nowhere to be seen. I really was left (sighs) to my own devices. Plus, I was overseeing some of the worst low-brow, low-fi pornography ever. But... I uh, made some local friends and, you know, they took me out and they, they showed me around and they took me to local bars, taught me some lingo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went on boat rides and binge drinking to mask the reality of actually where I was. Your life. Oh, yeah. my Lord. Yes. 
But, you know, I've always sought out adventure and sometimes it doesn't pan out the way you want it to. It Mm. can be challenging. I realised, well, I brought myself here. I've got to find the best in every situation. And these beautiful Filipino people who had sort of taken me under their wing, which is ironic given that, you know, they come Mm. up just below my breasts, (laughs) uh, they were making every effort because they could see I was one of many people that had come through this rotating door Mm. of employment. And run away at the first possible moment. But see, they strip you of your passport. But Mm. after a while, like, you know, I started to enjoy it because it's, as you know, it's it's fourth world conditions there. I mean, the poverty is so prevalent. And I just thought, well, why am I carrying on? You know, look at these people, they've got nothing, yet they're still smiling at me when they sell me a coconut you know, for Mm. 20 cents and a handgun for 30, you know. So (laughs) it was quite incredible. Um, And after a while I started smiling. I mean, I tried to bring as much sort of feminist principles to the set. Mm. And then the bosses turned up. Uh. Now, to say that they are a trio of deeply dishonest, ignorant, racist, xenophobic, propagandistic, fear-mongering, sociopathic subhumans (laughs) intent on destroying anything of value or natural wonder would suggest I found them interesting they absolutely were not they were poisonous they were cruel they were malicious and they one day tied a guard to a fence and left him in the sun because he'd stolen a sandwich now I realized what I was up against and I thought well I have to laugh because that was the only weapon that I had because we were in the midst of the Philippines the British armory makes all of their weapons in the Philippines on this island of Cebu where I was. Mm. And let's just say a lot of those guns don't make it onto the boats. So everywhere you go, you have to check your gun in at the bar. The only people who are allowed to keep their guns are the militia, you know, the local kill for hire. And they're some pretty nasty, mean-looking people. But herein lies how they saved my life because... I I really had to get out of there Mm. and I wasn't allowed. I was tied into this contract for six months. They had my passport. You know, everything was filmed. The guards took notes on every single thing you did. They knew where you came. They paid off jeepney drivers, taxi drivers. Anyway, there's this drink in the Philippines. It's a locally made beer called Red Horse and I found this particular beer and my new friends who were these militiamen and these young lady boys in this roadside bar which was so far away from this compound so they never knew where I was and they never to my knowledge ever ever watched me. So I was drinking this Red Horse and it's a local brew of dextrose and formaldehyde and uh, when you climb that pink pony there's no getting off (laughs) uh, unless you're bucked off Mm. and it's so so strong that uh, we were driving home in a taxi one night when this taxi driver pulled over and ran into this field where this man was having sex with a goat and he, he ran after him going, that is not your goat, that is not your goat. <laughs> Gets back in the taxi and he goes, oh, Red Horse makes you forget. You sure you weren't hallucinating this? No, one? no, no. no. That was, that was, I mean, Lordy. I did some things on Red Horse, believe you me. But Red Horse led me to these people in this bar mm. and it led me to this bar where there were these men for hire kill for hire these little lady boys at first they were all very very suspicious of me because mm. I was a white woman but I came on the back of a motorbike they knew the motorcyclist and he sort of ushered me in I was so depressed I guess yeah. I was really down in myself I was really questioning what the hell was going on in my life it was completely against any of my ethics personally emotionally professionally to even be a part of this this set the way they spoke and treated all the local people, I mean, these were some of the most despicable, 
people I've ever met. But anyway, so I was at this roadside bar and part of the initiation, I guess, was that you had to sing a karaoke song. Now, there's no secrets. I love karaoke. <laughs> I do. My, you know, one of my favourite karaoke songs is Katie Lang, Constant Craving. Oh. That wasn't on. That wasn't on the, um, on the list. Yeah. <laughs> but Celine Dion's Power of Love was. Oh. And I think you need a lot of Red Horse to get the upper reaches of that Indeed. Power of Love. I really just gave it. Oh, in a way, I remember thinking I got lost in the music. I know it sounds so corny, but, yeah, I was, you know, slightly intoxicated. I was in this roadside bar in the middle of Cebu Island. There was men with machetes attached to their tracksuit pants. There was all these young lady boys in training who really should have been At not school. there. At high school. Yeah, yeah but yeah. so beautiful and they're all up there. You know, holding my hand and like seeing that I was just this angry, aging old biddy who was lost. Anyway, the one of the militiamen like kicked the person sitting next to them off the plastic chair and, you know, ushered me over and I sat with him. He spoke really good English. We talked and I said, look, I'm working at this production company. He goes, yes, I've heard. Yes, mm. it's a dark place. Yes, you can come back and sing with us tomorrow night. Anyway, the funny thing about this roadside bar was there was one Michael Bolton song in the (laughs) playlist and it was only for him. (laughs) He was the only one allowed to sing it. He was the only one. Wow. There were rules and the little lady boys um, in training told me this. Mm. Anyway, I was plotting a way out and um, I'd spoken to a couple of the locals who said, well, you can throw your clothes out the window, clamber out, and we will help you escape. And I just thought, whoa, it's not going to come to that, is it? You know, so I confronted the CEO and said, look, I've got to get out of here. And she said, no, you're tied into your contract. We won't pay you. And they still owed me, you know, three months' salary. Mm-hmm. So I'm not walking away from, you know, $15,000, $16,000. And I just thought, look, my hands are tied here. So I went back to the roadside bar, which I had been frequenting a lot, mm. uh, sang my Celine Dion because it was a request of uh, Mr Militia. Mm-hmm. I was getting better at it too. And uh, I sat down and I said, look, You've got to help me, you know. I don't know how to extrapolate myself from these evil people but I just feel like it's going to be a bit of a breakout and I'm going to need a little bit of muscle, muscle, manpower and probably a bit of ammo and hopefully someone's going to film it because it's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I said to him, you know, how how can you help me? You know, I'm... You know, I'm awash in a sea of human rights violations, poverty, corruption, civil war and zero health care, and suddenly I'm the one with the problems. And he leans across to me, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, we will kill them, you will pay us. And I was like, no, 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 yes, yeah, maybe. I mean, how would you do it? And just as I was having this little cry, this little ladyboy sat on my lap and gave me this card of the goddess Kali. She represents... Death and annihilation. <laughs> She's a woman who became drunk on the blood of her victims mm-hmm. on the battlefield and wore a garland of human heads around her neck. Mm-hmm. Well, you both know I love a bit of chunky jewellery, so <laughs> I was not at all opposed to that. <laughs> but it had come thought, to this. Yeah, it had wow. come to this. Creator destroyer. Mm. Yeah, but it was all too much. So they broke me out. Fortunately, there was no guns involved. And I remember as we were driving down to the airport, we stopped at the roadside bar, not the one I'd been going to with them, but a roadside bar, and we sang karaoke again. And I thought, you know, when the chips are down and you think life can't get any worse and when you're faced with an image of yourself that you couldn't possibly recognise to be you, 
you know, remember that there are such, there's such goodness out there in the world because no problem is ever too big, too proud or too embarrassing that it is immune to the healing abilities of a power ballad, <laughs> especially when sung loudly, out of tune and drunkardly by a crowd of potentially dangerous and damaged humans because fighting someone else's battles and the upper register of every Michael Bolton ballad ever written mm -hmm. is what saved my life. Amelia, Amelia Jane, Jane Hunter, Hunter, commit no nuisance. I have no words except thank you and we bow to you. My Lord. <laughs> Music saved her life. Take it to the bridge. Tell me how am I supposed to live without you? Now that I've been loving you so long, how am I supposed to live without you? And how am I supposed to carry on? And all that I've been living for is gone. <laughs> It's so moving. It's beautiful. So yeah, it's beautiful, mate. It's beautiful. If you'd like to stay in touch with Amelia's adventures through life and comedy, you can follow her on Twitter at Amelia J. Hunter. Three Wicked Women, the Sirens of Radio. It would be incredibly remiss here on Three Wicked Women today, Sam. In our episode devoted to music. If we didn't pay homage to some of our departed heroes from the world of music. This year has been a hell of a year. A lot of lot of souls have evacuated. <laughs> I know, it's very weird, isn't, isn't it? it? It's like some kind of road trip to the sky. Yeah, There's, yeah, it must yeah. be a big pub up there that everyone's gathering at yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to play a giant gig forever, <laughs> an infinite gig. The house band. Oh. Well, made up of Lemmy. From Motorhead. Indeed, great bass player and, and a musician who changed the face of metal. And the face of German stamps recently <laughs> too. There was, there was a commemorative stamp issue there by was, Deutsche Post. Oh, my God, it's the one and only time I've done anything related to the to the Build newspaper website, which is very, very tabloid for Germany. But I signed up and then... the. the they wouldn't let me. Like, I couldn't figure it out. You I, couldn't find out how to buy it? No, I went to the shop and I... I <laughs> Couldn't know. I couldn't get my hands on them. Thwarted by the world of philately. Philately. <laughs> um, Peter Behrens, the drummer from Trio, and I love Trio. I know in Australia most people thought they were a one-hit wonder with Da Da Da. What a wonderful. But you should hear the rest of their back catalogs. No, they're a Genius band. Yeah, genius art rock mob. A couple of people from the world of country. Guy Clark, amazing songwriter. And Mel Haggard, unfortunately. Glenn Frey from the Eagles. The Heat Is On. But the two who have knocked us sideways this year are, of course, Prince and David Bowie. So we say valet to all of the names that Indeed. we've mentioned today. I still say Prince was the greatest live performance concert that I've ever seen in my life. Public Enemy came close. Okay. But Prince was the one on his revolving bed and his guitar solos. I mean, Prince could do everything. He could write. He could play reportedly like upwards of 14 different instruments. Um, he could dance. He, he could dance. He had style. He was a fantastic band leader and people said that just playing sound checks in his band was the most educational musical experience for them. 
Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people sort of say similar things about David Bowie. Yeah, that he let his musicians really be who they were and sort of soar and delve and... Yeah, it was a collaboration on stage Mm. for him. He learned as much from them and grew as much from playing with others as as they did with him. So, look, you know, uh, the world slightly misshapen this year because we have lost two creative lights indeed so i think sam really the only way is to do what elvis did and say it in a song now (laughs) to say goodbye and thank you and we'll miss you to uh well one of our great heroes at least that we've mentioned today david bowie and this song that you wrote and we're about to hear and hear you sing and perform came to you in a dream I had this I had this very vivid dream one night and I, I had a series of these kind of dreams but this was the only dream where someone famous was in it where I was often being chased through blasted out post-apocalyptic landscapes but in this particular dream David Bowie was helping me escape so we were like picking our way across the rubble while my dad and a group of guys in white hoods were chasing us through this sort of cityscape. Lordy! And this song was playing and it's really the only time that I've managed to wake up in the middle of the night sort of something in me was like this is too good so I woke up and sort of half asleep, got the guitar and worked out what the chords were and wrote down the lyrics that came out and then went back to bed. But it, it belongs to Bowie. It's not a Wasp summer song and I hear his voice singing it. So I'm I'm not trying to do a David Bowie impression, but it's really, it's his, it's really his song. What's it called? Richer. Let's hear it. From side to side, the movement heads until he learns. They chase out the ideals. Rampant career is in languid disguise. I feel good, I feel strong, I feel the richer I feed you on, richer for Feel the richer to feed you on, richer for experience. 
strong I feel the richer to feed you on Richer for song to David Bowie and Sam I have to say I feel all the richer for having spent six episodes of podcasting with you on three wicked women thank you we've we've certainly learned a lot and we've um, we've laughed a lot we have <laughs> we've had such great fun doing it and listening to our special guests who we found living wonderful and unusual lives on the streets and in the Altbau of Berlin and of course our regulars too I'd like to thank them our sommelier Oliver Budak and the comedian Amelia Jane Hunter who moved mountains and did a whole heap of work for us to contribute their fine words and ideas Yes, indeed. We hope you enjoyed listening to Three Wicked Women. Please feel free to stay in touch with us on the Three Wicked Women social pages or our email, threewickedwomenradio at gmail.com. And now that there is a back catalogue of six episodes of Three Wicked Women, if you'd like to share this podcast with your own communities, it will encourage us to keep going. And we're looking into making another series of podcasts, a a side two to our side one. So we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. And Sam, really, there's only one way to say goodbye on a podcast all about music, isn't Mm -hmm. there? And now (laughs) the end is near. (laughs) The time is... Oh, I don't know all the words. Good on you, Sid. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Wicked Women is an independent podcast produced by Megan Spencer. That's you. It is. And Samantha Waring. That's me. It is. Huge thanks to sound wizard James Tolson from Berlin Tour Support. To this week's special guests. And to our regular guests Oliver Budak for Gut Feeling. And the very wicked Amelia Jane Hunter for Commit No Nuisance. And the Three Wicked Women theme song is Stolen Kisses by Wasp Summer. That's you, Sam. And our percussive stings are by Oliver Budak. And we would love to hear from you, our wicked audience. You can drop us a line at threewickedwomenradio at gmail.com. Stay up to date with us on Facebook by liking Three Wicked Women Radio. Or you can tweet us at Wicked Women Rad because that's frankly what we are. Share, stream or download the Three Wicked Women podcast from threewickedwomenradio.bandcamp.com. And we can't wait to talk to you again next time in another fit of voluptuous panic.